Welcome to From the Heart with Dawn Lister, she, her, Daniel Groom, he, him, and today's special guest, Tom Granger, he, him. Tom Granger is a breathwork teacher. Um, he lives in Manchester and he's the author of Draw Breath, The Art of Breathing. Uh, the book is published by Summersdale and available from all good independent booksellers. It's also available on Amazon, but we all agreed that we'd rather you bought it from an independent bookseller. But let's talk about that in a minute. First of all, welcome, Tom. It's really lovely to have you. We are thrilled and excited to talk about the amazing book that you've written and the work that you are doing mostly online now, I think, is from what you were saying. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Dawn and Daniel. It's really lovely to be here. So let's check in with how we're all doing today. Daniel, how are things with you? How's your week been? My week's been um, very, very, very busy. Um, I'm, I'm working to a deadline because I'm going on holiday next week. So I've um, got lots of things that I need to put a line through before I can switch the phone off and have a week's peace. <laughs> But no, been been very well. I got to um, experience a really amazing um, theatre play um, on Saturday. Um, it was at a place called the Gatehouse in Highgate um, near Hampstead in central London, and it was a play called The Funny Girls, and it was uh, the story of Joan Rivers and Barbara Streisand and their relationship when they first met in the 1950s. And then the second part of the play was after Barbara Streisand was really, really famous in the 60s. And it was just about their relationship with each other and their relationship that they have with their mums. And it was hilarious, but it was so fast, the jokes. It was literally like watching, you know, like a tennis game backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, because they are probably some of the most wittiest people or were the wittiest people because obviously Joan Rivers has, has passed a couple of years ago. But yeah, it was just really good fun and lovely to be in a theatre and just seeing a live production again and actually, you know, being able to, to be around real people. It was a real, real treat to be able to do that. Is um, Barbara Streisand funny? So she's not known as a comedian, but actually she's a very funny person. She's a mm. funny girl, <laughs> but a lot of her, a lot of her films are actually, you know, although they're musicals, that there's a there's a real element of of comedy in them as well. They've got that kind of, you know, that Jewish wit that, um, you know, <laughs> comes with comes with many Jewish people. You know, that kind of ability to be able to to mock themselves very easily, um, and obviously, you know, Joan Rivers is just I don't know to me she's just hilarious I, I, I love her and it was really sad actually we had tickets to see her in South End and she died just before she was literally doing this show and she unfortunately died in America just before she was due to fly to the UK to do this tour so we didn't actually get to see Joan in the end. Oh she did a really good um you know that thing they do after the Met Gala where they all sit around talking about yeah. their clothes? Was it I, the fashion, fashion place, is it yes. called? That programme oh, she did with my. Kelly Osborne. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> she was so funny. The way she ripped everybody's costumes apart and 
But she got away with saying the most inappropriate things, didn't she? Used to, like want to crawl inside your skin, <laughs> but she was just brilliant. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh gosh. And you've and not how... been... go on. Sorry, Daniel. No, I was just going to say, how have you been keeping Dawn? Yeah, well, I'm better this week. Now my um, hamstrings loosened up a little bit. I've still obviously I tore my hamstring last week, and uh, yeah, I managed. I managed to kneel today, which I'm very excited about. I was actually made my day. I managed to kneel for a whole hour teach a class so yeah that that's that's better but uh, we went to see a comedy last we went to the in our town there's a local um, comedy club once a month called joker and it's um really good they have comedians from all over the country come up and do um there's like three and they do a set and have you ever been to a club where the comedian's so bad you want to curl up and die (laughs) it was that it was awful it was um uh, the 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 compare was pretty crappy and then the first comedian almost so bad i mean he just he knew he was doing so badly and he kept saying well this doesn't go very well is it you don't get my humor and where i come from i'm like the biggest thing i mean he was it was like a little teenager (laughs) and then rather than just get off he just kept digging his grave and they started abusing everybody and like abusing us southerners and all it was absolutely awful and the whole room was silent like no one laughed and what was worse no one even heckled like no one said anything it was I've never felt so uncomfortable in a comedy show in my life (laughs) and uh, yeah that was that was pretty bad so I did that at the weekend apart from that I've just been working working far too much don't like this need to chill out a little bit more and I'm missing being able to go in the sea because our sea is full of sewage isn't it Daniel raw sewage being pumped into our Lovely estuary. Apparently it's happening up and down the country. And I learned a really interesting thing, which is that our in the UK, I didn't know this, but all of our water companies are owned privately. They're not owned by the council. And they are, um, the R1 locally is owned by two Canadians and a Japanese person and one UK person. And they took half a billion in profit last year. They're paying their local chief, our local chief, chief executive, one point five million, but they can't afford to repair our sewage, our pipe that's got a hole in it. So I'm absolutely horrified, and I, I really, really, it's really upset me because I just think, you know, we should be looking after the planet, we should be looking after environment, and we should be looking after each other. And it seems like corporations are just so much about money and profit, and it it really goes against my nature, especially as a a yogi, a yogi, a yogi, a practitioner, somebody who tries to develop, you know, compassion and and have a light footprint in the world. So, you know, to think that money is just so much more important to people, and it's quite distressing. I was, I've been very distressed about it this week, about that, and about the, you know, the climate summit that's going on at the minute. And I've had to really dig into my mindfulness practice because I got to a bit of a dark place and felt a bit hopeless. So I had to go into that place where. I was feeling compassion for everybody, even the people who are too ignorant to do something that's going to save the planet. And also to calm myself because I was getting myself in a right state. So I've been doing a lot of extra mindfulness and compassion practices to kind of calm myself down and doing that thing I always tell other people to do, put the good stuff in so that I, you know, I can cope with some of the stress that we're all having to live in because it's a stressful time in the world, isn't it? Yeah. So, Tom, what about you? What have you been up to? How's your 
weeks um, well i've been uh, i've had a cold this week um but it probably serves me right because i went down to your neck of the woods in london um last week and uh, like daniel i went to the theater i went to see harry potter and the cursed child oh. um yeah and i'm a huge harry potter fan mm. um not so much a jk rowling fan anymore which is a shame uh but yeah she... <laughs> <laughs> she's not um, very good on her lgbtq rights is she <laughs> no, no and it's such a shame because she has been such a beacon for difference you know so much of the original books are about um racism basically or you know you could even read that Professor Lupin is like an allegory for AIDS, you know, the werewolf. Sorry, I'm a bit of a Harry Potter fan. I can really go deep on this. But, <laughs> um, so it's a real shame that she's kind of chosen to, you know, no matter what you think about any of those issues, just a lack of compassion mm. uh, in how she's sort of approached all of that stuff. Mm. Um, but yeah, the play was pretty good. It wasn't as good as I was hoping, though. And then I went to see Wicked the next day because we had nothing to do the next day in London, so we went to see Wicked. So I saw two very Halloween-y kind of themed plays in one week, which was good. Um, How did you find Wicked? I loved it, yeah. I'm I'm not usually massively into musicals, if I'm honest, uh, but I went with my friend who really is, and so I was kind of seeing it through her eyes and um, really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it's quite a spectacle, isn't it? Yeah. Huge songs in there that have sort of, you know, even if you're probably not necessarily aware of where they come from, they're very, yeah, you're very aware of them. noticeable, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. You can't help think... yourself but sing along. <laughs> my, my friend was telling me that the original actress who was in it, she went on to be the voice in Frozen. I don't right. know if that's... Yeah. yeah okay, cool. I'm, I'm getting my musical knowledge up there now. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember oh, yeah. her name. I want to go and see Frozen. I'm really desperate to see it because one of my nieces is obsessed with it. And I said I was going to take her. But you can't take children under six to see the musical. Oh. Kind of wonder what's going on. Well, we we paid for um, Ryan's niece and nephew to go. When was it? But 18 months ago and it got cancelled and then it got cancelled again and then they got to see it last weekend funnily enough and they had an amazing time um they said it was really really good um my brother-in-law was moaning that it cost him about 80 quid to buy two teddies <laughs> the kids mm. wanted it was like, no. <laughs> well you should have just said no shouldn't you and bought them in toys mm. r us instead <laughs> But no, they had a great time. They said it was brilliant. Oh, it sounds good. Yeah. Let's get to why you're here. I do love these chats. We should have a separate podcast where we just have a chat about life and Amazon and musicals. Um, but let's get to why we are here. Tell us about you and how you got to be doing what you're doing. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so the, the book that I'm kind of promoting at the moment it's called draw breath the art of breathing um and it's essentially a way for people to learn the basics of breathing and mindfulness in an engaging way and so the book invites you essentially to draw in time with your breathing hence the name draw breath and you're tracing up uh pink lines as you breathe in and down blue lines as you breathe out and drawing these different illustrations each one representing something different about 
the breath, the physiology of the breath, the psychology of the breath, the philosophy of the breath. And um, the book is split into three parts. So it's beginning with the body. So noticing how different breathing styles change the, the physiology of the body. And then the second part is mind. So learning about using the breath in uh, what I know you are yourself an expert in Dawn of, of using it to train our attention and learn mindfulness. And then the third part of the book is about spirit. So it's really learning how with the, the breath as a foundation, we can begin to focus on compassion, all these other elements of our lives, realize how connected we are to uh, the world around us. Um, and so that book came out at the very end of 2019. And um, I've been sort of promoting it ever since and then also working on lots of other projects. But yeah, I guess we had this conversation just before I came on about I'm never quite sure what to call myself because um, I'm kind of an author, but most of my time is spent either teaching or working on books that never actually make it out of there, uh, make it into the real world. Um, so before I wrote Draw Breath, I was writing humor books. Um, and fans of this podcast will definitely remember the kind of coloring book craze of about six years ago, where you're all yogis, you're all interested in meditation, and um, people were probably buying you coloring books because they thought, oh yeah, they're a bit creative, they like relaxation techniques. Um, and it kind of was endemic in publishing, just every bookshop was just a wall of coloring books. Uh, and I wrote a satirical coloring book at the time called The Coloring Book for Goths, the world's most depressing book. Um, <laughs> which <Like> was, that <laughs> and that's a coloring book that you color entirely in black to help you <laughs> to achieve Brilliant. a demeanor of uh, aloof cynicism and melancholy. So, um, <laughs> So that's kind of where my publishing journey began. Uh, and then after that, the publisher said, can you write a book that's um, another book for kind of emo teens, that kind of market? And I was like, well, that wasn't really what I was doing, but sure, yeah. And so I did a book called The Breakup Journal, which is like a kid's activity book. So like word searches and journaling and things like that, uh, but for adults going through a breakup. Um, yeah. And it was supposed to be a joke, but a few people did get in touch with me afterwards and say that it was actually quite helpful for them going through their breakup. Uh, and then I did another one that was called The Love Scrapbooks, like the antithesis of that, where people could, um, each of these books is essentially, you know, a hundred little creative tasks um, that people can uh, use in some way. And the, the themes kind of from those books really informed Draw Breath because, um, they're all interactive, they all invite creativity, and they're all kind of loosely themed around emotion. So either trying to instill an emotion, even though it's a joke in the coloring book for goths of melancholy or overcoming the emotion of um, grief in a, in a breakup, uh, or kind of communicating the emotion of love with the love scrapbook. So those things all came together to make Draw Breath because it's an interactive book that invites creativity and it's about you know, regulating your emotions and being aware of your emotions more deeply and stuff like that. So I'd actually been working on the beginnings of the book from before any of those books. I'd, it wasn't called Draw Breath at that point. It didn't look like Draw Breath. Um, but when I first really kind of got into mindfulness meditation in, I guess, my mid-20s, um, I'd been working as a uh, graphic designer 
um, for commercial you know, marketing companies and stuff like that, and a creative writer as well for the advertising world. And so it was very natural for me. I got really obsessed with meditation. I started writing about um, my journey of learning how to meditate. I suppose not my journey, but trying to use poetry and wordplay to make it engaging. And in the back of my mind, at this point, I'd never published a book or anything like that. In the back of my mind, I was thinking, I would love to make something that is more accessible than what's out there right now, because so much of mindfulness is very abstract. And mm -hmm. what I found in my early 20s, um, going to these sorts of training events, um, going to meditation retreats and stuff, I was like, very rarely would meet another male under 35, you know, the whole mm -hmm. time. And I was thinking, how can I do something that would engage them? I've still not managed to do that. But I think that the world has turned anyway. So uh, people like Wim Hof have really inspired um, people who identify as more masculine to get involved in this. They're less kind of put off by the idea that it's all about, you know, wearing yoga pants and um, tea leaves and stuff like that. Um, but that's kind of the, the direction I was trying to head in. And it ended up with making draw breath because um, what happened was I'd done these three other books. I been working on uh, the project at that point was called you versus thoughts so it's poems about trying to overcome negative thinking and uh i'd sort of given up on it not given up but just never really thought oh, i would go any further it's just kind of for my own amusement and then i took a break from commercial work i'd been with the same company for about seven years which for a millennial is like a thousand years in one company just not something that my generation does so um, I felt like it was time to make a change. I was feeling very disconnected from my own artistic process because, you know, I was working for, uh, don't know if I can get sued, but, you know, evil corporates, basically. Um, oh, don't worry. I, I talk about them all the time. So I worked for one for 15 years. <laughs> yeah. So I was using the, the things that I felt most connected to, you know, my passions. I never studied design. I never studied writing. They were just things that I'd done naturally from a, being a kid, really. I used to write comics and make things and all that stuff. I, and then as a student, I actually studied philosophy, but I was still learning Photoshop and Illustrator and all these techniques in the, in the background because I just enjoyed it. Uh, and what I found at my, in my late 20s, I'm 34 now, but about 29, I was just so disconnected from the enjoyment of art in any way because I'd been doing it for evil corporate companies for so long that it was like why am I even doing this why am I the 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 kind of addiction that you have as an artist to having a good idea or um doing something that makes people go oh yeah that's cool I like that um had gone and I needed to find something else and for me that became teaching but in that break that I took I went traveling to India and Southeast Asia very traditional uh white guy gap year um, and went to North India, which I'd wanted to do for ages and traveled to Dharamsala and Rishikesh, kind of yoga, yoga bum territory. And um, when I was in Dharamsala, that's where the Buddhist monks who fled Tibet when China took over, they all kind of uh, migrated to around that sort of area, Dharamsala, that's where the Dalai Lama lives. And so there's always little events going on, little meditation things where the, the monks will be teaching things, or you can go and um, hang out with them and they'll practice their English with you and stuff like that. So uh, me and my partner at the time were going to these sorts of events. It was very much on my mind. I'd been 
wanting to be a meditation teacher for, for a long time, been practicing myself for a long time. And I had the idea to begin drawing in time with my breathing there because we're surrounded by mountains and I'm drawing mountains all the time, so trying to connect back to my art. And it still didn't become the thing that was like, this is what can be the book. Um, it was just something that I started doing in my sketchbook and drawing different shapes. And it was only about a year later I actually connected the two. Having done all those interactive books, I thought, oh my God, this could be the thing that takes people on a journey through the book. And it took me a while to develop it from just, you know, simple sine waves into the flowing uh, one-line images that are in Draw Breath. Um, but once I did that, I knew I had an idea. And I've had lots of experience of trying to get books published before um, and sending, you know, Coloring Book for Goths. So I think it was about 30 publishers I sent it to before it, anyone took the bait. Uh, I knew that I wanted Draw Breath to go to Summersdale because they print really beautiful, colourful books. And I knew this needed colour and it needed to be hardback and be an object that people could really have a relationship to. And I sent it to them and they got back to me straight away and were like, we'll have this, don't show it to anyone else, which was amazing. It was like, okay, this is definitely a good idea. Um, and since it's been out, you know, yoga teachers get in touch with me all the time. Can I use this um, in to teach, especially people who are doing it with children or maybe groups that don't speak great English. And so I have like a library of images that I can just share with people if they are interested in using this in their own uh, lessons. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that actually answered your question, but that's kind of the story of uh, this, this book that I've written. Um, I suppose my interest in yoga predates all of that. Uh, you asked, I think, about my kind of journey to what I do. Um, I'd studied, I think I mentioned I studied philosophy at university. And as a kid, I was someone who was always very interested in reading books about ancient religions and um, understanding things like the hero's journey and stuff like that. And I wanted to study philosophy because I thought it would give me a deeper meaning, a deeper insights into life. Um, but really how philosophy is taught in universities in the West is not what people think it is. It's a very dry subject. It's extremely analytical and extremely abstract. And the best way I can describe it to you is it's essentially the skill of doubt. You know, you're learning to take a premise or an argument and say, well, what if, what if we doubt everything about it? Can we prove that any of this is real? Because the endeavor in philosophy is to get to the truth uh, in Western philosophy. Um, but we're, we're trapped in the kind of prison of language, talking about language. So it's just full of rabbit holes and all this kind of stuff. And the best analogy I've, I can think of uh, for what philosophy is like when you study Western philosophy is it's like where you're wearing a jumper, a nice woolly warm jumper that you don't know that you're even wearing. And that's your reality. And when you study philosophy, it's almost like there's like a little bit of a thread at the bottom of the jumper and you just start to tug that thread questioning things and you never actually get to the end of the thread and before you know it you're just naked with like a tangled born of ball of yarn <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's kind of what happens when people study philosophy in in, in England in the west we know we just um, it's a disembodied process and so for me when I began to find out more and more about yoga in my early 20s it was like, oh my God, this is the antithesis because this is actually taking 
a deep philosophy, which is essentially non-dualism, and making it into accessible, practical practices that we can all do every day, which is what I've been looking for all along when I went to study philosophy. Um, and so, so many people tell me now, oh, you study philosophy, I wish I'd done that, you know, because they think it's to do with like the kind of nice quotes that they read on Instagram. But actually, it's very kind of dark existentialism, most of Western philosophy. So I'd say it's just stick to the yoga, because that is probably a much better philosophy, a much older philosophy. The kind of mystics that you read about, it's like they kind of knew all the things that the Western philosophers think that they've discovered now. They're talking about the same stuff, you know, they just got further with it. Um, so, yeah, so that interest in yoga was there for a long time. I just didn't know it was yoga that would give me that uh, meaning and technique and happiness. And then the, I suppose that the touch points are kind of really, for me, reading Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now, which I know is kind of like cliche because so many people use that as a jumping off point. But for me, that was the first time I'd read uh, a book that was explaining what was happening to me in a yoga class at the end of the class. And so that was like, okay, how do I make this practical? And that was just, a, just so happened to be the time that the eight week MBSR courses were very, very popular. Um, so I went and did one of those. And um, I suppose another big influence is my mum is a yoga teacher and uh, also a psychologist. So we always have lots of long chats about that. Mm. And I was getting really into mindfulness at the time. And she's just like, we, we have this joke that she's always like, that's just yoga. It's just yoga. It's just rubbish yoga. <laughs> and uh, and um, I was always like, no, 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 mum, you don't understand. This is like a completely different. And now I completely agree with her. I think it's like not rubbish yoga, but mindfulness is just an element of yoga that's just been abstracted, really. Um, so I've come full circle now where I've gone through yoga into thinking, oh, mindfulness is like the bits of yoga that I really, really like, the sort of things that are happening in Shavasana. I want to kind of distill that through learning more about mindfulness so I can really access it. Um, and now I'm full circle because I think that through changing the breath and through changing our postures and movement and all that kind of stuff, we can prime the mind in a much deeper way for what we're calling mindfulness. Um, and that's kind of why the book is split into those three sections, body, mind, spirits. It's like, if we don't change the breath before we start to focus on it, for most people, you're not going to have the desired outcome. Um, and I think that this is going to happen more and more now in uh, how meditation is taught, that you're going to see people really doing breath work. It's already happened with the major sort of apps, you know, the headspaces and the calms. They've already started adding breath counting, which they never used to do at the beginnings of their meditations. That's breath work. We're deliberately changing the breath um, in a very subtle way to begin calming a nervous system, mm -hmm. to pre pre prepare us for meditation. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's so interesting. There's so many things I could pick out and talk to you about. I should have written them down while we were talking. <laughs> And the first thing I wanted to say, because I think it's worth unpacking this a little bit, and I'd be interested to hear what you both have to say. Is, you know, when you said a little bit about you know changing the breath and so on, my my hackles went up immediately. I'm like, well, that's not mm. mindfulness. Because in mindfulness, we don't do anything; we just pay attention to what is. But as you continue to explain, I very much identify with. For many people, it's not an accessible practice because actually, if they're experiencing trauma 
to ask them to sit with what is, is going to re-traumatize them. So they need a context within which to make themselves safe first. So, you know, using the practices of um, pranayama and some asana movements in combination with, you know, compassionate awareness, that's very transformative. But then that does cross the line and it no longer is mindfulness because we aren't just simply paying attention. I, I, could you speak a little bit more about your experience of that and, and say a little bit more perhaps? Yes, I'd absolutely love to. So it's, it's probably the biggest contention for anyone calling themselves a mindfulness teacher. And it's one of the reasons I no longer call myself a mindfulness teacher um, is because, you know, just to give you an example of something that can happen in a mindfulness class, uh, I was teaching a mindfulness class about this time last year. And one of my participants was really struggling. It was like the fourth week of the eight-week course. And they're really struggling to feel anything, like a feel connected to the practice in any way. And when I spoke to them on the phone about it, their breathing was, it was like they'd just been for a run. Mm. It was like hyperventilating breathing. And I, as I spoke to her for about 20, 30 minutes on the phone, I realized that's just how she breathed. Mm. And that's not uncommon. Mm. It's extreme, but it's really not uncommon. So our breath rate as a specific example, and I'll talk a little bit about why in a moment, but our, our breathing rate in the West and pretty much all over the world nowadays is between 12 and 20 breaths per minute. And for people who have really bad anxiety, it can be even more, but we can survive perfectly well on six breaths per minute or seven or eight, if you want to have more, um, we can slow the breath right down. So, and looking at, uh, there's mounting evidence based on sort of retrospective studies of studies of breath that a hundred years ago, as a whole, we breathed a lot slower, a lot more slowly at about six, seven breaths per minute. And so why, why has that changed? There's a lot of different factors. Increased in, increases in stress, high carbohydrate diets, meaning we're burning off a lot more of that sugar, creating more carbon dioxide in the body that we need to breathe off. But when we're breathing like that, we're sending this perpetual signal from the body to the mind that we're in a state of panic. Whenever we're breathing rapidly, you know, if, if I wanted, if you'd never had a panic attack before and I got you to breathe, basically doing Kapalabhati for five minutes, you probably have a panic attack because you're breath has that much power over your mind and for so many people coming to mindfulness practice they have dysfunctional breathing and then we're telling them can you focus on your breathing the monks who were doing this originally were living in the mountains eating very very sparse and healthy diets fasting their breath rates would have been very very low anyway their oxygen tolerance would have been very high sorry, low anyway, they could have got by on very hypoxic states. <clears throat> so when we're telling people to focus on the breath and they have a rapid breath to begin with, they are going to struggle to be mindful with that breath. And the other way that, that, that it's really important, so that's just very lightly touching on the blood gas chemistry there. If you are somebody who has anxiety and you naturally begin to breathe more rapidly, your body's tolerance of carbon dioxide actually lowers and carbon dioxide isn't a waste product it's called a waste product in our gcse biology um, but 
actually it's maintaining the, uh, the pH levels in your blood. If you don't have enough carbon dioxide in your blood, you can have oxygen um, rich blood, but the pH is such that it actually can't leave the blood cells and get into the cells. So we need high levels of carbon dioxide in the blood to do that. And the other thing that carbon dioxide is doing is it's actually um, the thing that makes you need to breathe in. So if you hold your breath and then you experience the need to breathe, we kind of instinctively think of that as a lack of oxygen making that happen. Actually, it's an abundance of carbon dioxide. But the, the trigger to breathe in can get lower and lower and lower with the amount of carbon dioxide, the more you hyperventilate habitually. So that means then that you can feel like you need to breathe in because of the levels of carbon dioxide, even when you really, really don't need to breathe in, you're perfectly fine. And so by practicing slower breathing rates, we begin to reset that sensitivity to carbon dioxide to a much healthier level. That means we don't feel that air hunger all the time. And the other thing is how, how this is affecting the nervous system. And this relates specifically to mindfulness. Uh, I'm just gonna have a drink, sorry. <clears throat> It's so interesting. I didn't. I did not know that about carbon. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's as a yoga, as a yoga teacher's kind of community. We're something we're all guilty of saying. You know, breathe out all that waste, gas, carbon dioxide. Mm. That's going to change in the next few years because the science is kind of changing. Mm. It's not actually changing. It's just more um, common knowledge now because uh, people are interested in it. But the other, the other way that changing the breath really really affects mindfulness specifically is that people coming to a mindfulness class with dysfunctional breathing, anxiety, depression, any of the things that would normally bring someone to a mindfulness class, they're going to sit, sit in that mindfulness class. And because of the thing that they're bringing, whether it's anxiety, let's say that they're breathing more rapidly or depression, maybe they're breathing more slowly. I'm just speaking in broad terms here. But when they try and focus on that breath, if you're anxious and you then try and just be mindful, just focus on your breath, Notice when you're distracted, come back to the breath. If you're anxious, you're going to be distracted so much that it's really hard to get any kind of um, linear path through that meditation. Uh, you might be distracted for the whole 20 minutes and just have a few moments. And that's still being mindful, but you're not getting as much out of that as you could. You're not building that reflex of awareness to take into your daily life. And the same goes for uh, if you're depressed. And I'm speaking again in very broad terms, but... Um, you might be breathing much more slowly, you might be freezing your breath, all of those things that mean that you're just, there's a kind of dullness to your awareness that's not very alive and curious, which is what we want to be when we're mindful. If you slow your breathing rate down to six seconds, and the way I explain this to people is kind of by just demonstrating, right? So if I do this... <gasps> you kind of know roughly what I'm doing or what kind of attention I'm paying. I'm shocked or I'm kind of suddenly aware of something. That's my in-breath indicating that to you. And if I go, ah, you know that I'm feeling relief, I'm letting go, and that's my out-breath indicating that to you. I've not said anything, but you know exactly how I feel because the breath is this communicator. Now, if we begin breathing rhythmically and slowly, what we end up doing is building both the parasympathetic and sympathetic sides of the nervous system. And we end up with a state of mind that is both calm and alert, which is the perfect conditions for mindfulness. Now, if you were trying to sit there, 
not change your breath in any way and you had dysfunctional breathing, you're never going to achieve that state of mind that's ideal for mindfulness. So it is a balance, right, of um, how do I be mindful whilst changing my breath? And the solution that I think is the best is just to go, just do 10 minutes of breathing practice and then 10 minutes of meditation. That's going to be better than 30 minutes of meditation in terms of building the reflex of awareness that is the skill we're trying to learn in mindfulness meditation. It was really interesting. As you were talking, Tom, I was thinking about from a yoga therapy perspective, the different yogic models that kind of sometimes get applied to, to what you've just described. And actually what you were talking about was the gunas. So this mm -hmm. idea of our rajastic mind being almost that anxiety provoking state the thematic mind being that dull depressed lethargic place and about us trying to find that balance that place of sattva where you are active but also calm at the same time <laughs> yeah you know? and and that being the perfect place then where you can access creativity where you can access your innate state you where you feel at ease within yourself for maybe just a moment or maybe uh you know a, a, a long period of time yeah beautiful I, I was just also thinking around you know it's really interesting I, I find it fascinating with mindfulness why there isn't more of an introduction of preparation for people because if you look at the way yoga would be traditionally taught in a kind of half a sort of you know eight limb process actually the preparation to get to the breath and the mind comes via the body. So it's almost kind of like looking at ways that you can release tension from the body that actually might distract you as you start to become more aware of your breath and then you start to move into meditation. And it's almost like that process has been tried and tested for so long <laughs> that it actually it, it works doesn't it and then sometimes it feels to me like I've been in meditation classes and I thought actually I don't feel comfortable to go into myself because I need to move first and I haven't mm. been invited to do that I need to I need to breathe I, I know some pranayama techniques for me that would work to calm my nervous system down so I can get into a a more meditative state quicker or a more mindful state quicker and, it, and it, it fascinates me that actually, and I'm wondering if we might start to see, as you said, there is more integration between, you know, a more traditional mindfulness practice and the yoga practice, as we understand it. You know, at the moment, yoga, it feels, is very asana-based mm. and is losing so much of that richness of, you know, the philosophy, the meditation, the pranayama practices around it but then it also feels like mindfulness is taking you straight to that point and it's like you've kind of forgotten all the preparation to get yourself there <laughs> absolutely yeah i think it's really interesting and and the the other thing that we could touch on is the fact that the commodification of mindfulness means that it's been sold on its benefits and that means that it's treated as though it's a relaxation technique and it really isn't it's, it's the, the technique teaches you to be conscious and aware of your thoughts as they're happening, your emotional experience, your embodied experience, all of those things. That might not be a relaxing experience, 
now getting comfortable with that and learning about that and beginning to have choices about the thoughts that you commit to or take seriously will lead you to feel more relaxed. Um, but the way it's been turned into apps and all that kind of stuff, it's being treated as though it's a relaxation technique. And people get very frustrated by it and disappointed with it. And they, they kind of lose interest in it. And I think that's one of the reasons that mindfulness hasn't had the impact that we all thought it might have had 10 years ago is because people try it and then they go, well, I don't feel any relaxed. I'm really stressed now. I should try and be mindful. Oh, I, I don't feel very relaxed. Whereas breathing, breathing techniques do uh, give you that. And then from that place, you're in a more neutral place. You can actually start to be mindful from that point. I was just going to add, Tom, that, you know, being fortunate to have shared relaxation techniques, meditations, yoga nidras, you know, all different types or ways of accessing our inner self with the public, it astounds me that people's perception of what they think meditation is, is a state that actually feels very unattainable for, to so many people. <laughs> Yes, you know? and it's like I want to get to that point, and I want to get there in ten minutes because that's all I've got. <laughs> and yeah. realizing that actually this can take years of preparation sometimes to be able to even drop into that place that may feel like calmness or peace, but actually as soon as we get attached to that, then it becomes something that we're chasing, doesn't it? <laughs> it really does, and I think. Um... As you were saying, it's a, it's a pro, the mind, mindfulness is a process that brings up what's truth, what's your truth in that moment. And that isn't always very comfortable. And I think when the, I mean, I've been very fortunate to have some great teachers. So we were taught very well about how to do this in a very safe way, but it's about helping people to become more resilient around their experience because we're in a human body, in a human life, living with, billions of other human beings who all have in their own process therefore it's uncomfortable at times and um the practice of mindfulness doesn't negate that that's not going to change you know it's still going to be uncomfortable what we we're learning in our practice i i feel is how to how to cope with those things how to sustain a sense of well-being, peace, um, resilience, strength, compassion. But if you're starting from a place of qu quite significant trauma, for instance, or distress, the worst thing you could do is sit and pay attention to that. You need to firstly be able to stabilize. And I think the problem has been, as you very rightly said, it's been commodified. So a bit like yoga years ago became very trendy and they all, we can sell some leggings doing this. Mm. And, you know, we can always sell a yoga mat for 150 quid or a fancy retreat somewhere. You know, people saw it as something to market, didn't see it as a practice, you know? And in the same way, mindfulness was, oh, this can really help. And yes, it does. It changes people's lives. It absolutely does. There's no two ways about it. Um, but it can also be quite harmful. And the minute you commodify something, you, you stop, in my opinion, you stop working with it for its highest good and you start looking for how to make a buck. Yeah. So um, 
I'm just having a rant, really. <laughs> having one of my usual rants about how mm -hmm. our beautiful practices have, you know, been destroyed by Western civilization. And and you're absolutely right. There and there's a lot of talk around this in my training, you know, the yoga teachers on the training where this isn't mindfulness, this is just yoga. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I mean, you yeah. can see there's so many parts of the yoga you can you can pull out and say, well, it's this or it's this, and this is asana, and this is you know, meditation, and this is pranayama. But the, they all are structures which hold each other together and feed mm. together. And I think we don't need to have them in a box, do we? We can say mindfulness is a way of paying attention in a particular way if we if we start with that you can pay attention in a particular way to your asana you can pay attention in a particular way to a mantra you can pay attention in a particular way to your actions around other people so your karma yoga practice so you can bring that mindful awareness to every aspect of your life in in the mat on the mat in the studio and in 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 your life situation with other people and it's only when we start to be present enough to notice that we then have the capacity within us to make some different choices mm. would, you, would you agree absolutely yeah and that comes back to this idea of it's all just yoga where um it's it is about the asana and it is about the pranayama and it is about the attention and they all as you say feed into each other and you mentioned their trauma and the danger of sort of re-traumatizing people. And before we hit record on this, uh, Daniel was mentioning the um, neuroscientists, uh, Dr. Richard Gerbach, uh, and sorry, Dr. Patricia Gerbach and her husband, uh, Dr. Richard Brown, um, who are studying the effects of breathing techniques on trauma specifically. So they're psychiatrists in America, they're also neuroscientists. And um, one of the things that happens when you experience trauma and you no longer feel safe um, just going about your daily life, there's this constant feeling that you're not quite safe. Um, what happens is the, the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system, the vagus nerves, stop working uh, in the same way that they would if you wouldn't have, didn't have that trauma. And what breathing techniques can do, again, that mindfulness alone cannot is actually begin to restore parasympathetic function so we have two branches to our autonomic nervous system the parasympathetic branch and sympathetic branch and the sympathetic branch is essentially the accelerator parasympathetic branch is the brake and every time you breathe in that sends a wave of uh, acceleration through the body because you're activating a diaphragm and if you can feel your pulse you can actually feel your heart rate increasing ever so slightly mm. and if you're hooked up to a little um galvanic skin response like they have on a lie detector i've got a little handheld one uh, i don't have it with me but if i did i could show you that when i breathe in it goes Woo! and as you breathe out it goes because it's basically showing that your sympathetic nervous system when that happens that's what it's measuring in a lie detector if you're asked a question you know you have to lie about then you have this massive sympathetic reaction uh, as your body prepares for threat um, and what happens is as we breathe in, the sympathetic wave travels through the body. As we breathe out, the parasympathetic wave travels through the body. And through rhythmic breathing techniques, through slow breathing techniques, we begin to almost train back that parasympathetic function. So the vagus nerves begin to become much healthier, better at um, taking information. Sorry, the vagus nerves basically 
I think I'm probably preaching to the converted. If there's yoga teachers listening, it's like a huge topic that people are interested in at the moment. But it's the 10th cranial nerves. They travel through the whole of the body, connecting all of these, all of your vital organs together. And uh, most of the information traveling on these pathways is going from the body to the brain. And one of the things that happens when we're relaxed, when we're about to drift off to sleep, or if we've been sitting in meditation, sometimes we can begin to feel our heartbeat a lot more strongly. And that isn't because your heart is beating more strongly. It's because those channels, the vagal channels, are lighting up with information. They're actually becoming more, more information is traveling from the body to the mind. And that's an indication of just how relaxed you are, that your body can actually hear these signals that are already always there, but we don't pay much attention to. And so when we breathe for a consistent period of time, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever it might be, um, we begin to restore parasympathetic function, which is hugely beneficial to people who've experienced trauma because it's restoring that feeling of safety. So it's the same systems that are active when uh, a mother is cuddling her baby. That's the ultimate feeling of safety. And what's happening is there's huge amounts of information traveling up both the mother and the baby's uh, parasympathetic nervous system, specifically the vagus nerves. And when we don't feel safe, that can kind of get um, dampened. And with breathing techniques, we can be begin to uh, restore that. And that's what Patricia Govang and Richard Brown uh, have been studying. Um, and that's I, I firmly believe that over the next 10 years, their coherent breathing technique, um, which is the name's taken from a, another researcher called Stephen Elliott, but um, the coherent breathing technique will become the new kind of mindfulness. And then it will actually boost everyone's capacity for mindfulness because not only are we in that calm, relaxed, but alert state that I was mentioning, there's actually more information traveling in the body that we can listen to and be mindful of if you can be more mindful of your heartbeat, all of the, the, the feelings of blood pressure and energy traveling around your body um, become much more, more clear when this is happening. So there's more stuff to be curious about and present to when we breathe like that. I, I was really fortunate to study um, with um, Gerbel and Brown. Um, one of the first few times I come over to the UK and I had such a, unique experience because they, they did this coherent breathing which was around about a sort of six inhalation six exhalation um and you can do it sitting you can do it lying down which makes it accessible for most of the community um but they use a sound to kind mm. of allow you to follow with the breath so it immediately took your need to have to count away which was really useful, but then also you then were using the sound to, to allow your breath to, to, to almost track it. And it was just an obvious up sound and a down sound. Mm. And I remember doing it, it was in a conference center somewhere in London and I was lying on the floor in a conference center. You can't imagine how uncomfortable that would have been. And I just completely drifted off. I was just completely in another space. I was completely present, like I would be in yoga nidra or a meditation. I was completely there, but I was completely not there at the same time. And it was a, yeah. it was a fundamental experience that, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I went on to read their book, the, the Healing Power of the Breath, which we were talking about before, Tom. 
which I'd recommend everybody, whether you're yoga, mindfulness, interested in breath, or just want to learn about your stress response rate, is such an amazing book. And they've done such amazing work all around the world, supporting large communities in trauma, traumatic situations. You know, they they go there and they actually go and support people face to face. You know, it's amazing yeah. the work that they do. It's so yeah. simple, but there's so much science behind it. <laughs> yes. And um, the I had just, I just want to say I had the exact same experience <laughs> of going to, I think it was at the Minded Institute. I went and sort of did a two-day thing with them and then a five-day teacher training. And I had that exact same experience of lying on this horrible floor and going, oh my God, this is like, just like the first ever yoga nidra I did, that dragon that I've been chasing. Um, here it is. And what I found was that it didn't go away. You know, every time I did it, I could achieve that feeling of deep, deep rest. Mm -hmm. And I, just for your listeners, the track that you're mentioning there, the sound is called Two Bells, the number two bells, mm -hmm. and it is available on, on Spotify. Um, and uh, like you say, it's such a powerful experience that since then I've been really obsessed with these, this concept of rhythmic breathing. It's one of the main things that I've been interviewing people about on my YouTube channel, um, interviewing the kind of scientists who are studying it, a few of the pioneers who define the techniques, um, really making it the thing that I just have to know about. And it's from that seed experience that you described of thinking, how can this possibly be? I did Because I, I'd read there, I had a slightly different experience where I'd read their book prior and I tried a bit of the thing. I didn't really like the bells that they had going on to time you and stuff like that. And then went and did it and was like, oh my God, this is, this is the thing. Um, so yeah, that, that track's called Two Bells. So Tom, you were very kindly offered to allow our listeners and us to experience a, a, a similar practice to that, which is something you've been working on yourself. So um, do we need to do we need to do anything? Do we need to lie down? Do we need to sit up? What do we need to do to, to accept um, this Oh, yeah, practice? okay. Um, so you can do this seated. You're perfectly comfortable doing it seated. If you want to lie down, you can do it lying down as well. Um, and basically, just as a bit of background, so... Uh, my brother's a musician. He's been helping me write various different pieces of music that people can do this to. And these are going to be available quite soon on the uh, Draw Breath YouTube channel, um, which is where I've been sort of talking to all these researchers. So uh, if people did want to subscribe, then if they like the music, this is the most simple track just because it works best for recording. Uh, but what we can do is just prepare ourselves by slowing down our breath using triangle breathing. Um, so we're just going to be breathing in, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, and then pause, two, three, four, and breathing in, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, pause, two, three, Four. One more in, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, pause, two, three, four, and then just breathing softly and gently through your nose, 
We're just going to invert that triangle now. So we're going to hold at the top of our breath now. This is just to begin relaxing the uh, rib cage in a more open state. So breathing in, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, good, out, two, three, four, in, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, one more, in, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, and just breathing naturally. And just beginning to soften your eyes and eyelids and eyebrows. Softening your lips and cheeks and jaw. Softening the forehead and the whole of the face. Allowing your shoulders to relax with the next exhalation. And as you inhale, letting the belly be big and soft. And in a moment, you'll begin to hear some music. And as the tones go up, we'll breathe in. And as the tones go down, we'll breathe out and I'll guide you. So breathing in two, three, four, out, two, three, four. There's the tones going up and down. In, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, in. Out. In softly and gently. Out slowly and calmly. Breathing in, softening the belly. Breathing out, softening the shoulders.
softening the muscles of the face. Softening the fingertips and palms. Softening the shoulders and the muscles of the back. Letting the hips be soft. Knees be soft. Feet be soft. softly, breathing gently. can feel a little unnatural at first, but in a few minutes this will feel like you've always been supposed to breathe this way. just using your imagination now, imagining that your breath is mist or a cloud of energy moving through the body. Breathing in, the breath flows up from the base of the spine to the top of the head. Breathing out, it flows back down to the base of the spine. Breathing in and up to the top of the head. 
breathing out and down to the base of the spine. Breathing in and up. Breathing out and down. And in a moment, the music will gently fade. Just keeping your eyes closed if they are closed. And allowing your breath to just be natural. Notice how the body feels. How does the breath feel having done this? How does the belly feel? And in your own time, becoming aware of the sounds around you, of your body on the chair or the floor, and slowly opening your eyes. And so we were only doing that for six minutes. It can feel like longer, but in that space of time, your blood pressure will have equalized. So if you have high blood pressure, you'll have gone lower to a much more healthy rate. If you have low blood pressure, it will have come a little bit higher. Um, your brain will have calmed your parasympathetic nervous system. If we could see those vagus nerves, they'd be lighting up. Um, so it's a very, very powerful technique. And according to Dr. Alan Watkins, who's one of the scientists studying this, he's a cardiologist, um, if we do that for 15 minutes a day for six months, the effect on the nervous system is such that your heart health is equivalent to being 10 years younger. Um, that's how powerful that simple technique is. And I don't know how you feel right now. It can feel a little bit stress-inducing the first time you do it because if you're not used to changing your breath, it can feel like, am I getting this right? All that kind of stuff. But honestly, try it another couple of times. It's one of the safest things that they've found for treating trauma. So it really is not gonna harm you if you try it a couple more times and you'll find that it becomes more and more natural and actually is a really pleasant practice. Um, so yeah, that's why I'm so passionate about it. Thank you for sharing that. It was interesting. So um, I'll share my experience. Um, yeah. I don't like being directed mm. from trauma. It's my childhood was very difficult and there was a lot of control. So when someone gives me a direction, I immediately freeze. I immediately just think, oh God, no, I'm not worried about getting it wrong. I, don't, I just don't want to do it. Mm. I've learned through my mindfulness practices and my yoga practices to soften and to say, that's my fear response. Am I safe? Yes, I'm safe. 
Do I trust this person? Yes, I do. I'm going to go with it. So it took a little while for me to not be feeling slightly panicky about being told where to place my breath. And, um, and then I noticed that my breath was quite shallow, which um, I'm a little bit asthmatic with the old long COVID going on. So um, I just kind of went with it. I just thought, well, I'll just pace it as best I can. But I really, it was interesting. At the end of the six minutes, it felt exactly the same as, as if I'd done a long 20-minute sitting practice. felt very peaceful in my head. Very, very calm, very present. And um, I do, as you said very early on, mindfulness practice can be very abstract. That suits me, for me, because I'm not being told anything. And that really makes me feel very much in the driving seat. I massively see the benefit of being led and doing the breathing practice with it. So for me, I thought it was very interesting and a really you know, really beneficial practice. What did you think, Daniel? Well, it's it, that version or, you know, style of breathing has been something that I've kind of plugged in and out of for a long time now. And actually it's, it's been great for me to be reminded of it because actually I have a tendency, and particularly what you just said at the end, Tom, I have a tendency for my blood pressure to go up when I'm stressed and it isn't something that medically I need to worry about but it's something that I'm very aware of and I, I realized the last time I managed to reduce it was by doing this coherent type breathing so for me it's a reminder yes there's a lot going on yes your blood pressure probably is a bit high <laughs> come back to mm. that practice again yeah um what I feel what I felt at the end was an amazing sense of being really stimulated but not in an overly stimulated way so I didn't feel like I was I was hyper stimulated but just mm. very aware but also very calm within my mind mm. yeah and also very yeah. cold which for me is a good sign that my parasympathetic nervous system's kicked in yes <laughs> I need yeah. my blankets and I need to huddle <laughs> myself <laughs> yeah well spotted um, yeah nice. the, the... I, I, I really like the tone of the I like the steps with the with the piano keys it felt really that felt really lovely it felt like i was sort of climbing up and then coming back down again yeah what i've found in sort of testing the music that my brother's been writing in in the courses that i'm doing is that people find that one in particular very very easy if they've never done it before Mm. but of course you can we've got a few other tracks that are going to come out where it's a lot more like the two bells which is a bit more resonant and a bit more um, airy for people who kind of they know what they're doing they just want to try something different now uh, but just to pick up on a few things uh, that you said so Dord, you know you don't have to have me guiding you to do this now that you know what to do you can just go ahead and listen to some music like this uh, um, and still get all of the benefits uh, I do recommend just from my own experience that um, even though I've been doing this for ages sometimes having a bit of a guide it's just helpful for me to let go at the beginning or maybe guide someone guiding me through maybe just some sighing, some things that are just going to begin to stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system. Uh, the other thing that you mentioned was that you're asthmatic. Now, the first people to begin studying this in the West were looking at asthma. So they were looking at if we slow down the breathing rate, what happens for asthmatics? And one of the things that happens is 
we begin to reset that carbon dioxide trigger that I was telling you about at the beginning. So if you were to do this, you'd probably gain quite a bit from it because it's going to begin getting rid of feelings of breathlessness that are brought on by um, over-sensitivity to carbon dioxide. Mm. And uh, for Daniel, the um, blood pressure thing, the guy who wrote the Two Bells track that... um, Patricia and Richard use uh, in their studies uh, is a guy called Stephen Elliott, who's who wrote a book I think called The New Science of the Breath um, in 2004, where he kind of defined what he saw as the coherent breathing technique, and he's basically on a mission to get this into hospitals in America, and because it's it's had the impact on blood pressure is crazy and immediate. Like he's got this theory that it's to do with the what do, what do they call it i always forget the thoracic pump so mm-hmm. our heart is beating and it's pumping blood around our body but our breath every time you breathe in you're not just drawing air into the lungs you're drawing blood into the lungs as well from around the body every time you breathe out that blood is pumped mainly upwards and into the head he's got some really wacky theories so he thinks that um giraffes are they have the biggest diaphragm of any mammal and they also have the longest necks and so that's quite interesting because it's this idea that the diaphragm is actually being used to pump blood as well. That vacuum that's created is pumping the blood, uh, sorry, the pressure that's being created is pumping blood up into the head. And so his theory about breathing and hypertension is that most of us aren't breathing enough to actually use the thoracic pump to be pumping blood. Now, that's not to say that we should be breathing in as much as we can and breathing out as much as we can because of the rhythmic nature of this and the fact that we're breathing every six seconds anyway, we actually begin to pump a lot of the blood. And I've seen it, I've done it on people, I've practiced this on countless people now who've got high blood pressure, hook them up to a cuff and within literally five minutes, their blood pressure's dropping to a healthy level. Um, so I, it's not something I just believe from this wacky guy on the internet is something that I've seen with my own eyes now. And it's like, wow, how do people not know about this? Because it's not, you don't need a drug for it. You don't need to learn any special skill. Literally anyone can do it. It's, it's really crazy. It's so, so fascinating. fascinating. Ditto. <laughs> 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 yeah, it is fascinating. It's, it's what's fascinating to me. I was having a conversation actually yesterday with two of my colleagues from the therapy center about um, antidepressants and drug cultures versus the placebo effect and, um, you know, just environmental factors and how people seem to want to be given a tablet or some kind of medicine mm. to change their symptom, which is being caused by their environment. Mm. and it's really interesting isn't it you know we don't as a species often seem to want to do the things that are going to be really simple and helpful that are going to help us to have a healthier happier fuller life and something so simple like you know I know for me doing my meditation practice twice a day my breathing practices it's life-changing if I skip them I feel rubbish Mm -hmm. Yeah. rubbish I can feel myself becoming anxious and I'm not a particularly anxious person I feel myself becoming anxious and hypervigilant and then I start doing too much of everything and take on too much because I'm not present in my life um and what I'm hearing you know about these breast practices how how accessible is that we can all find six to 15 minutes a day yeah think how much time you spend watching telly 
<laughs> yeah. Or listening to music or on your phone scrolling through Instagram. You know, maybe say 15 minutes of that and I'm going to take and do a brief breath practice and, you know, who knows where that could take us. Daniel, I can see you want to jump in. I, I, I was just going to start to wind up our session because um, I'm aware that we've been on for quite some time and just wanted to say thank you to Tom um, for sharing so much of this information. It's been amazing. Uh, one question we always ask everybody, all this work that you're doing with others, how do you take care of yourself? What's your, <laughs> what's your go-to self-care things? Oh, I mean, not very well, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I, I, the, the reason I, one of the reasons I got so into meditation, one of the reasons I trained with breath work specifically to do mindfulness meditation is because I experienced chronic pain. And so I have this constant battle with wanting to do more yoga, but knowing it will make my chronic pain worse. But if I don't do any, it will, um, it will get worse anyway. So I have to find this like balance. And so for me, I, the one thing that I do literally every day is coherent breathing. So the thing that we've just all done together, I do that for 20 minutes a day, which sounds like a lot, but really it's a really enjoyable practice. It's like something I actually look forward to doing. Um, but I try to do yoga every morning and really my goal, which I've reset for myself in the last few weeks, because I took like three, uh, I took like three weeks off doing yoga. And as we all know, as soon as you do that, you're pretty much back to square one with like your routine and stuff like that. So um, my new thing that I've been doing is my only goal is just to lie down on the mat. So I might not do any yoga. That's okay. I can just lie there. That's just to get me there. Um, and yeah, to motivate myself to do that, I'm doing Yovember, you just do yoga every day <laughs> and, uh, and trying to sort of do that. And then I do other sort of health hacks that I, I dabble with as I do the uh, intermittent fasting, which I find massively boosts my mood. I get loads done in the morning if I um, continue my fast because I don't get sluggish, all that kind of stuff. So that and sleep now i know that you had i just want to say as well thank you so much for having me on this podcast oh, yeah. really wonderful to be here with you guys and get to know you and um be amongst some amazing guests that you've had uh i know that last your last guest was tracy stanley i read her book radiant rest recently and it's a really wonderful um book and i've used a lot of things from that so sleep's been a big one for me recently because when i don't exercise i find it hard to sleep and the technique that I've used is a classic yoga nidra technique but her book reminded me of it um, which is the counting down from 27 breaths I just find mm -hmm. I never make it to number one I'm always asleep and that's just a really wonderful and simple thing so yeah oh, that's amazing Tom thank you so much for being here and just sharing so much of you know your your wisdom and and knowledge and I, I really you know the the book um that we've been talking about the the jaw breath book is just i think it's a real lovely way for people to access these practices without it feeling like it has to be anything that feels unattainable to them you know mm. everyone can draw a line potentially everyone can breathe 
Yes, yeah. <laughs> and actually, you know, those bringing those two things together is almost like you were saying about, you know, we've gone almost full circle back to actually what's the basics again? You know, how yeah. do we, how do we reconnect people? And yeah, it's just a, 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 a wonderful thing that you've put out into the world. So thank you. Thank you. Go out and buy one for Christmas presents. Christmas <laughs> present that. Yes. <laughs> don't get people coloring books get get people draw breath drawing books yeah i find the coloring books anxiety making they make having to draw for color in makes me feel anxious always has don't know mm. why but i love to draw so i'm going to try it but i think i'm going to there'll be great stuff in presents so oh you see my mum's a huge fan of the coloring book so i'm going to upgrade her to draw breath <laughs> brilliant <laughs> <laughs> well tom thank you so much for being here thank you dawn for being my co-host and until next time thank you so much to everybody for listening please do let us know if you have any feedback any ideas or anyone that you want us to interview we'd love to hear from you thanks so much bye <laughs>